Today we'll be looking at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. If you've been with us as we've gone through Matthew, uh, everything's kind of built up to this point. This is a, a crucial text as we look at Matthew's gospel and speaking to who Jesus is. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a task to try to take it on in 25, 30 minutes. It's kind of like, uh, as one person said, trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. Uh, there's a lot here, so... I would appreciate it if you would pray for me as I seek to communicate God's truth to you, as I pray that God would speak through this message. So let's pray for our time in God's Word, and then I'll read our text. Father, I do thank you for this morning and this Lord's Day. And, uh, and Lord, I pray even now as, uh, as I read through this text and as we go through it this morning, Father, that you would do a work through it. I pray, Father, that your, your Holy Spirit would uh, be at work in this place and these people. Lord, I, I thank you that you tell us upon salvation that we have the, the gift of the Spirit. And, and, Lord, that the Spirit is who helps us to discern and understand. The Spirit teaches us. The Spirit opens up our eyes, opens up our ears. Lord, apart from these things, uh, we cannot rightly discern this text this morning. So I pray, God, that you would help us to understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would even... Help us to push back the distractions, uh, different worries, anxieties, perhaps, that we have brought in this morning to this place. And, Lord, in these moments, that you would help us to better understand who Christ is and understand the gospel deeper than perhaps we have coming into this morning. And pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, let me read through this text as we look at it this morning. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. It says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a text that is very foundational to our faith, and if we, if we miss out on the foundation, nothing else really quite makes sense. It's kind of like in a home, perhaps the, the first time you bought a home or built a home, you discovered along the way there was a, a little crack above a door, and, and you, like I, probably took a little spackle and then patched that crack, but the, the problem is, if you've got a problem in your foundation, that crack's going to come back. And uh, that crack might get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you never address the problem in your foundation, well, you're not going to fix the crack, no matter how many times you fill it and you paint over it. And the same is true in the church today. The same is true in our faith today. If we have problems in our foundation, uh, we will see indications of them. We will see cracks in our faith. But if we don't, if we don't address those foundational issues, well, then we aren't really fixing the problem. And And what we have in this text today is is the foundation of so much. And so what I want to do in our time this morning is really look at three critical questions, three crucial questions that we come away from this text with. The first one is this, simply, who does our culture say that Jesus is? 
As you look at the text, verse 13 there, it says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Uh, It's, I think, significant where he took the disciples to to ask this question. Uh, If you've been following with us through Matthew, you know that much of Jesus' ministry happened there around the Sea of Galilee. You know, we looked a few weeks ago about how Jesus had gone to Gentile territories, kind of north-northwest of the Sea of Galilee, and he went in and he ministered there. It was the first time, the only time we see in Matthew that he's left Jewish territories, and now he's kind of going over to the southeast uh, to this area called Caesarea Philippi, and I, I think that's a significant thing. You see, this this area was known as an area where there were uh, worship and, and temples to, to pagan gods, uh, specifically the god Pan. Uh, the area was called Panius. Uh, Pan is the, the Greek god of the earth of all things. In fact, if you think of it in context of today, we have those who are, who are pantheists. Pantheists worship nature because they believe God is in all things, that there isn't a supreme being God. God has just created matter around us. And, and that stems all the way back to this time and the, the worship of the Greek god Pan. And the area that Jesus has gone to has previously been known as Panius because that's where people would go to worship Pan. And so if you would picture just a, a mountainside, there were, there were carvings in that mountainside, there were caves within that, and they would go and they would offer sacrifices and they would worship there. And shortly before Jesus has taken his disciples there, uh, that area has come under the control of Philip. Philip was the brother of Herod. Antipas, uh, the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, um, he's in control of this area and in tribute to Caesar. He has named it Caesarea and in tribute to himself, Philippi. And so that's how it got his name. Uh, but you kind of get a picture, a sense of what's going on here. Jesus has taken the disciples there for a reason. And I think part of it is, as he is asking this crucial question of who do people say that I am, he's essentially saying that with this backdrop behind him of all these carvings of pagan deities and pagan gods. And notice how the disciples respond in this context. They begin to to share how so many in the culture in the day of Christ viewed him. Uh, some thought he was John the Baptist. We saw this already. Uh, Herod Antipas, before he, after he beheads John the Baptist, he thinks, as he hears about the fame of Christ, that Christ is the resurrected John the Baptist. John the Baptist had come and had spoken against his marriage to uh, essentially to his sister-in-law in this immoral relationship. And so uh, she is upset with John the Baptist for preaching against that. She comes up with a scheme through which her husband would have to behead John the Baptist. And all of a sudden he hears later about the ministry of Jesus, the fame of Jesus, and he begins to fear, well, perhaps John the Baptist somehow has been resurrected. Almost a sense of maybe his ghost has come back to haunt me. So some said that. Some said that it was Elijah. If you know the scripture, you know that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. You know that the, the scripture speaks and, and, and kind of prophesies towards the return of Elijah. In uh, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we have this, this promise that, that God would restore specifically families, fathers to their children, children to their father, and that he's going to use Elijah in this process. And so people, in, in looking for the Messiah... We're looking for Elijah to come in the Messianic age. And so you have, for example, some going to John the Baptist even and saying, are, are you Elijah? And John says, no, I'm not. And are you one of the prophets? No, I'm not. And so now you have people coming to Jesus. Are you Elijah? 
And we're going to talk more about what that means and about Elijah as we get into Matthew 17. But for now, it's important that you understand this, that there were people willing to accept that Jesus was the forerunner to the Messiah, but they weren't willing to accept he was the Messiah. They're willing to accept, well, he's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was a forerunner. He was one proclaiming the way, but they're not willing to accept that he is indeed the Messiah. They're, they're willing to accept that he's, he's somehow Elijah, and he's come back, and he's, it's the Messianic age, and it's coming, and yet they're not willing to accept that he is the Messiah. The same thing the text tells us for those who thought he was Jeremiah. Uh, the Jewish people had a tradition that Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense during the time when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and that in the Messianic age he would return. And so all these people are looking to Jesus and saying he's everything but who he actually is. Does that sound familiar? I mean, what Jesus is experiencing here with the disciples as he's standing there in that backdrop of all those pagan gods and all those other false religions... Does that look so different than what we see in our culture today? We live in a culture that is pantheistic, where people worship the creation over the creator. We live in a culture that's polytheistic, meaning people believe that there's there's lots of ways to God, and and I think we've seen that creep into the church a a great, uh, in, in a disappointing and great way. We see churches often now where where people will say, well, well, who am I to say that this person's wrong? And we're surrounded by all these different belief systems in the world and people who would say, like those in the days of Christ, that, well, no, you know, Jesus isn't the Messiah, but, but we believe this person is, or we believe in this religion, or we believe in this, this way to God, and there's all these thoughts on how you can get to God. And, and, and you find believers who will say, well, well, who am I to tell them they're wrong? I mean, they, they seem to really believe, and they seem to really really have a lot of faith, and they seem to live a pretty good life, and, and who am I to say that, that we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong? Who, who am I to say that? Well, if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of Christ. That, that's who you are. And who you are is an ambassador of the one who said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you're asking yourself, who am I? Well, the answer to that question is, you're not much. <laughs> but in Christ you are. But here's the thing. God didn't give us the Bible and say, well, just kind of pick the parts you like. And the parts you don't like so much, just set those to the side. Although that's what so many do with it. No, he gave us the scripture and we believe it is the inspired word of God or it's not the inspired word of God. And if we believe it is, then we have to accept Jesus' teaching that, that he's the way. And, and think about it, if we take that out of the equation, none of it really makes sense anyways. Why, why would Jesus go to the cross for some people who were going to believe that way? But there'd be no need for the cross for somebody else. No, the, the cross is necessary for salvation. And, and the only way people will be saved is through it. And that's why Jesus says, following John 14, 6, If you had known me, you would know the Father. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. And so just like the culture of Jesus' day, where he is surrounded by all these belief systems, all these false beliefs, we find ourselves in our culture to raid today surrounded by so many false beliefs. And the question isn't just who does the culture say Jesus is. The question then for us is, 
well, well, who does the Christian say Jesus is? And I put Christian in quotations because you, like I, have found that many will proclaim to be a Christian, but that might not be what they are at all. We, we live in a, an area of the world where people consider themselves culturally Christians. They, they consider themselves Christians based on their, their family heritage. They consider themselves Christians based on their Sunday morning church attendance. There's all these things that convince them that they are Christians, and yet the only way someone can be convinced of that is if they can share in the confession that Peter makes. And so let's look at that. Verse 15, Jesus says to them, saying to the disciples, but, but who do you say that I am? It's important to point out here because there's, a, there's various interpretations of this passage and I think uh, people have gone way down the wrong road on this. Uh, Jesus is not just sitting here having a, a one-on-one conversation with Peter, although that's how it's presented some. If you look at the Greek text, Jesus sa- says to them, who do you, that you is plural, in essence Jesus is saying to the disciples, okay, you've told me what everybody believes. You've told me about this pantheistic, polytheistic culture. You've told me people think I'm all these different people that I'm not. But, but who do you, disciples, who do you say I am? And, and Peter's the one that responds, but that doesn't mean that Peter's the only one who believes this. Uh, in essence, Peter is the, is the first of equals. He's, he's the first of the disciples to say it. We see often in the scriptures, Peter's kind of the spokesman for the disciples. We see that Peter's often the one who jumps out there and says things first and puts his foot in his mouth. Uh, But here, he's he's the first to say it. That doesn't mean he's the only one to believe it. He's essentially representing the disciples as he makes this proclamation. And and it's a fascinating one. In ten words, he uses the definitive four times. And what that boils down to is that that, that Peter is emphatically saying something. He, He is making a strong point. He says, you are the Christ the Son of the God, the Living One. He's wanting to make sure, he's saying it as strong as he can. And you know how that is. Parents, grandparents, when you're wanting to tell your kids something, you say it emphatically. You don't just say, you're in trouble for doing such and such. You, you right there, yes, you, I'm talking to you. Look at me, you did it, and we're emphatic. We want to make sure they understand we want to make sure they hear what we're saying. That's what Peter's saying to Jesus here in his response. He is emphatically saying, Jesus, you are the Christ. Now think about that part of the statement alone. What is it that everyone had missed out on at this point? He's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's the prophets. What's the one thing they're not saying? They're not saying, he's the Messiah. So what does Peter say? I, I we, we believe you're the Messiah. We know from the text, from looking at Matthew, that when the disciples at this point, Matthew 16, when they're looking towards the Messiah, they still don't fully understand what that means. Uh, The Jewish people were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone who was going to save them nationally, uh, save their people here and now. They were looking towards a, a kingdom here. They weren't picturing on a kingdom later. Much like people in the church today, oftentimes we're looking towards someone who's going to come in and and save us or save our nation. We're not thinking about a kingdom to come. We're thinking about a a kingdom now. And that's what we see here. They're looking for. But notice what else Peter says. He doesn't just say you're the Christ. He says you're the son of the living God. He essentially affirms the humanity of Jesus. He's the Messiah. And he affirms the deity of Jesus, that he's the Christ. He says, essentially, Jesus, you are fully God and fully man. You're it. 
And he, he doesn't fully get it yet. Again, the point of this passage is not how great Peter is. Think of what we're going to look at next week. Starting in verse 21, basically Jesus tells Peter and the disciples that he's going to go down on the cross. And Peter says, no, you're not. (laughs) He doesn't get it. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And so Peter's not the one being held up here. Christ is. But, but, But Jesus does affirm Peter in his confession. And he affirms him by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Essentially, that's he's saying Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, that's who his father was. He's pointing out that, you know, blessed are you, Peter, but he's reminding us, he's reminding Peter, listen, you're, you're Peter. We all know who you are. You're, you're John's son. No, nothing special about you. He's pointing to his humanity, his flesh, and then he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He's essentially saying, Peter, you're blessed, but not because of anything you've done. You're blessed, not because you figured this out. It's not as if the disciples are sitting there in the boat and one of them still doesn't understand that he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they're arguing about how much bread they have and Peter's over here to the side going, huh, I think he's the Messiah. I think I got it figured out now. And all these things start coming and clicking. No. What does the text say? The text says, Jesus says to him, here's how you figured this out. You didn't figure it out. The Father who's in heaven is the one that gave you the understanding that I'm the Messiah. And that is so significant because that's the same for you and I today. We we don't just figure out the gospel. We don't walk into Walmart and go down the spirituality aisle and try everything on and say, you know what, I think Christianity just fits me the best. I think that's the one I'll choose today. In order for you to make the confession that Peter makes here, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, in order for you not just to be a a quote-unquote Christian, but to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ at some point in your life, you need to come to an understanding that you can only come to if God reveals it to you. And this is what I mean by that. You look through all the scripture and you see God is always the initiator. God is the one who helps us to understand these things. You look, for example, at Genesis. God creates Adam, but how does he create him? He creates flesh and bones, a corpse. He's laying there on the ground, lifeless. And what does he do? He breathes life into him. And just as he did that with Adam, he needs to breathe life into every one of us. And that's why the scripture says that many will come to the scripture and they won't understand the scripture because they can't understand the scripture apart from the spirit of God helping them to understand it. And that's why in your experience you've had people who've said, you know what, I went to that church and I heard that preacher, I read the Bible, didn't make any sense to me. Is it because you're so much smarter Is it because I'm so much smarter? I know the answer to that one is no. No, it's because God's Spirit has to do something in us to help us to see. And that's why we pray, God, would you give people the the eyes to see because otherwise we're blind? Would you give people ears to hear because otherwise we're deaf? Would you give people minds to understand, hearts to believe? God has to do something. And that's why in the Old Testament he says, I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. We don't do surgery on ourselves. God does the surgery on us. And that's what we see happening here, that that Peter is able to believe, not because of himself, not because he's the son of John, not because of his own flesh and blood, but because the Father in heaven has helped him to believe and understand. And, And for you and I, it has to be the same thing. 
we live in a culture where it's very easy to go through the motions and for you to sit here Sunday after Sunday or in another church or check in here every once in a while and have your name on a roll and, and consider everything fine. But the reality is this. If you are standing where Peter's standing and Jesus says to you, yeah, but who do you say that I am? What's your response? It's not sufficient for you to say, well, Jesus, I just think you're the example of how I need to live. And it's not sufficient to say, well, well Jesus, I just, you know, I just think you, you taught the right stuff. I can live that way. Jesus, I think you're the example of sacrifice if I can sacrifice that way. It's not sufficient to say, well, well, Jesus, I think that you're one way to God. No, the only thing that's sufficient is for us to make the confession that Jesus made, that, 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 that Peter made, that Jesus is indeed fully God, fully man. He is the Messiah. For us to understand that on that cross, there's a reason he went to it. And it wasn't just some divine hallmark card to tell us how much he loved us. That somebody had to go to the cross. It's either going to be you or it's going to be someone who is perfect and sinless. And that's what happened when Christ died on the cross for our sin. He died a death we deserved and he gave us righteousness we didn't. And that's the gospel. And to respond to it is to confess what Peter confesses here. Who who does the culture say Jesus is? Who who does the, the Christian say he is? And then lastly, we see in the text the question that comes to mind. Who then does the church say Jesus is? This is a text that has been interpreted very differently among denominations and and primarily between the the Catholic faith and the Protestant faith. And I can't unpack all of that in the next few minutes, but I will do my best to help you at least understand why this is such a significant text for both of us and what I believe God is communicating to us through it. Jesus, verse 17, he said, Blessed are you. And then verse 18, he says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what is Jesus saying there? Well, there's mainly three interpretations of this text. Uh, One is the Catholic Church. Many of you grew up Catholic. You you know this, that, that the Catholic Church sees Peter as being the first pope, and here Jesus is establishing that authority in Peter. And he's saying, Peter, you are the rock. It's you. I'm going to build this on you. And there's that, that authority given to him, that infallibility given to him that's going to be passed down through the popes. I, obviously, as a Baptist minister, that's not where I line up. Well, one, the text says nothing about infallibility. The text says nothing about the authority that they express it says. And when you take it in the context here, P- Peter is lifted up in this passage, but just in a few moments we're going to see Jesus say to Peter, Peter, you don't get it. <laughs> And so I don't think that we can say that this is just about how strong Peter is. But that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that that is the confession of Peter that is foundational here. That it is Peter's confession that Jesus is a Christ. That that that's what Jesus is affirming. Jesus is saying, "Your, your confession, Peter, that's the rock. That's the foundation. You're getting it. And anybody else who's going to get it, they've got to get that. And And I do believe in part that's what's being said, although... I don't think that's, that's fully it, but, but even the early church fathers of the Catholic Church, many of them believe that and wrote that, no, it's not Christ, it's not Peter that's the rock, it's the confession that Christ is the foundation that's the rock. Uh, the other interpretation is one that is also held by some Protestants. It's basically that when you look at the wording in Greek, and there's kind of some word play here, Peter, Petra means rock, 
on this rock, Petros, it's a different form of the word, it means bedrock, that, that basically what Jesus is saying is that, that I'm the rock and you are a rock, and if your rock's not on the rock, then your rock's not going to have a firm foundation, but if you're on me, then we're gonna, you're going to be where you need to be. So, there you go, that's the end. <laughs> what do you do with that? Three very different interpretations. Well, I think what you do with it is what you do with any text that presents the possibility maybe for multiple ways to interpret it. What does the Bible say? (laughs) You know, because this isn't the only text that we have in Scripture. When you read the Bible and you read the Bible as a whole, you find that, that God is referred to as a rock often. And you see that Jesus, the Messiah that was to come, is referred to as a rock often. And then, what does Peter himself say? What what did Peter understand that Jesus was telling him? Well, we have scripture that tells us that. Let me just share two with you this morning. There are many. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. You can just write that down in your notes. I'll read you part of it. Acts 4, 8 through 12. Uh, Peter is giving essentially a sermon before the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is what he says in verse 11. He says... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. So so who does Peter say the real rock is? It's it's Jesus. And he's saying to the men who crucified Jesus, saying, you rejected him. This is the stone that you rejected. You're, You're the builders. And it's yet become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You think, here's Peter making this proclamation. You think, is it you know, possible, I wonder, even in Peter's mind, that, that he's sitting there as he is preaching, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's preaching to them, he's thinking back to when he's over there, over in Panius and Caesarea Philippi, and he's seen all these pagan gods carved into the mountainside, and now he's standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he's saying, there's salvation through nobody else. It's only through Jesus. He's it. He's the cornerstone. That's who Peter understood Jesus to be. We also see, as you read in Peter's own letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and again, you can jot this in your notes, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. 1 Peter 4 through 8, he is speaking of Christ. He says, as you come to Him, meaning come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Again, he's saying the same thing. Listen, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was chosen. You rejected Him as the Messiah. You were willing to accept that He was Elijah or John the prophet or Jeremiah or all these other prophets. But you rejected who He truly was. said, you yourselves meaning those who did believe, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And it's interesting because here Peter says, okay, Jesus is the living stone. He's the living rock and he's rejected by men. But you who believe, you, you're the living stones. Well, what's he saying? Essentially what he's saying is Christ is the foundation. And that we as parts, that bedrock, we are built on that foundation. But if that's not our foundation. We have shifting soil. And so he refers to both here. And he says, You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here he talks about the, the priesthood of the believer. 
And he's not saying it's limited through the Pope. He's saying you, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, every one of you in this room, everyone who's authentically a Christian, you are a priest. You communicate directly to God through Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice on the cross. And what a glorious thing that is. This is what Peter understood. And so he goes on in this passage to quote three Old Testament verses. Isaiah 28.16, Psalm 118.22, and Isaiah 8.14. All of which talk about the Messiah being the stone. The Messiah being the cornerstone. The Messiah being the rock on which the church is built. So what, what is the point of all that? The point is this. I think from the whole of Scripture, as well as Peter's own testimony, that the clear teaching is that the true foundational stone on which the church is built is Jesus Christ. And if the church fails to understand that or moves away from that, then the church no longer experiences what Jesus says when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's why you see so many today who consider themselves churches very much being prevailed against by the gates of hell. And this is for us. This is the warning specifically for Bloomfield Baptist Church this morning. The day in which we abandon our foundation being in Jesus Christ and the gospel is the day in which we will become a museum. And it can happen just like that. And we have to be careful that we don't get comfortable and think, well, well our giving's doing good and we're paying off a building and we're, we're baptizing some folks and people are joining the church and attendance is up. We're doing really good, aren't we? Because in a moment, these pews can be empty and we can be on a national registry of, of historic places where people just stop by here to see our building and that's it because we have long ago forsaken the gospel. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Not me, not you, not Peter, not any other person. It is Jesus Christ who is the foundation. And friends, if we even inch away from that, God help us. And you look around today, and just in our country alone in America, estimates are that 3,500 to 4,000 churches close their doors every year. And you hold that up in the context of this passage, and the passage says, well, the gates of hell won't prevail against it, so what's going on? Well, what's going on is we see church after church, denomination after denomination, people after people abandoning the foundations of the faith. And you can only keep your doors open so long. Because it's only so long before people decide, you know, I can either sleep in this morning or... I can go hear a message about whatever. <laughs> no foundation to it. It's not the word. It's just a motivational speaker. And that's not going to last. And Jesus tells us it's not going to last. And I hope that you and I heed the warning that it's not going to last. But here's the glorious thing for, for those of us who, who understand the church is founded in Jesus. Jesus is the foundation of the church. What a glorious promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that means in Asia right now, where there are more people being killed for proclaiming the gospel now than ever have been before, 
where a young father is being dragged out of his house where he's having a house church and he has been brutally beaten in front of his family to the point of death. That means the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that means in the underground churches and places all around the world where there are government seizures and there are movements and, and there are people trying to just squash out the light of the gospel, it means the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if we get caught up in all of our stuff and things about us and start arguing about the carpet and the building and we become just so internally focused, there's no promise there that we're going to last. There's no promise there that we're going to prevail. The only promise in this passage is for those who follow Christ and are founded in Him, they will prevail. And that's the beauty of the church. And then one last word here in verse 20. Jesus says, He tells Peter and the disciples these things and then He strictly charges them not to tell anyone. That seems a little odd to us, probably. You know, it's kind of like staying up all night studying with your kids for a test and then telling them, oh, by the way, uh, don't use any of, that I, any of that stuff I just taught you on your test tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, we would assume the natural conclusion here. Jesus is just giving this great word about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church and about how he's the foundation of the church. And then he turns around and says, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody. Well, th- this is, that's a temporary instruction. We understand as we read through the gospel that the disciples, even now, they don't fully understand this. And so you see Peter misunderstand it in the the rest of the conversation when Jesus says, I've got to go to the cross. He doesn't understand that. He says, oh no, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. We don't say that today. We don't say, what a blessed faith we would have had there been no cross. Because we understand the gospel. And we have the gospel. And we don't just have through Matthew 16. We've got through Matthew 28. And we have the inspired word of God. And we've got through Revelation 21. And we know how the story ends. And we know that through that Jesus says, Go, 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 go. Make disciples of the nations. He does not tell you or I to be quiet. He says, go yell it from the rooftops. Are we? Because that's what this all comes down to. If we're in a culture that doesn't understand who Jesus is, are we telling them? We're surrounded by people who consider themselves Christians who don't really understand the gospel and they don't really understand who Jesus is. Are we then going to tell them? We're a part of a church and we're in the midst of many churches whose foundation is to be Jesus Christ, not so that we can have a holy huddle, but so that we can take the glory and the light of the gospel out to the world. The question is, are we? I believe that we cannot thwart the will of God, that God says if we don't praise Him, the rocks will. But but here's the day that I think will be the most shameful day in the life of Bloomfield Baptist Church. It'll be the day when God raises up a missionary from the other side of the world and he sends them here to share the gospel with our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members because we wouldn't do it. And shame on us if that day comes. And before you start thinking it won't, it's already happening in other cities in our nation. That there are missionaries being raised up in Asia right now and thank God for them and they're coming here in cities where we've got a a church on every corner 
What's the problem? Just because we've got a church doesn't mean we have a foundation in Christ and we've, we've become so comfortable not taking the gospel to the nations that God has taken the gospel over and now He's bringing it back and we need it. But here's the big picture. You're sitting in a room of missionaries right now. If we just would get it. God doesn't need to raise up somebody in Africa or Asia to bring in Bloomfield. You're right here. Your ticket's paid for. Your bags are unpacked. You don't need to go get a passport. You're here. And God may call you, and, and I pray He does call many of us to go to the other side of the world, but, but we've got a job to do here as well. And, and that job is to proclaim the Christ, the living God, Son of God to our community and our friends and our neighbors, because apart from Him, there is salvation found in no one else. And that's what we're called to do. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, I do pray, Lord, that we would take the gospel to the nations. Lord, I thank You for those who You have called from our church who have gone, for the Terrys who are serving in Malaysia, for the culture serving there, for, for others throughout the world, for for friends like the, the Vanderpools in India, for Phillips in Africa, for others connected to this church and members of this church serving in South America and other places throughout the world. And Lord, we need to do that and we need to go. The great opportunity we have today is we can go right outside these doors and tell people who Christ is. And shame on us if we don't. And shame on me if I don't. Father, I pray you would work within our church a great burden, a great desire to tell people about Christ. We will be standing in the checkout lines in a few weeks as Easter gets closer. Jesus will be on the front cover of every magazine. There will be article after article saying who he was and who he was not. And we have every opportunity to turn to the person next to us and say, do you really know who he is? Lord, give us the boldness to do that. We have the opportunity to leave this place today to go tell people, do you you know who He really is? But Lord, we won't have that opportunity forever. And you've called us now. Now is the day of salvation to go and share it. And so Lord, I, I pray that we would. I pray as well, Lord, for any here this morning who has yet to respond and confess Christ as Peter did. Perhaps there's there's some here this morning who who think Jesus was a, a good teacher. Jesus was a good example, but they don't understand, or maybe they didn't understand before today, that that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for their sins and my sins on the cross. And that as we repent of our sin and place our faith in Him, we experience that great promise of the gospel where we receive the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we don't work, we don't earn anything. He earned it all. He paid our debt. And Lord, I pray if there's any here who's yet to respond to that, the Lord... In these moments, your spirit would awaken them and open their eyes and their ears and their heart and their mind. I pray for those things now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.